Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good morning again. Um, uh, for it's a uh, it's fun to be back here in Hillel, as I said at the very beginning, and it's good to uh, during this Advent season to be going through kind of the series that we're doing. We're doing a series called "Lord, Rend the Heavens and Come Down," um, uh, as we're reading through kind of lectionary passages in Isaiah. Um, you know, and and the season of Advent is about spending time thinking about Jesus's arrival. Right, both his first arrival, um, but also his second arrival. Um, and, uh, you know, the first being when he came into <clears throat> the world, um, incarnating into the world, taking on flesh. And the second being when he promises uh, to make all things right and new, and he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Right? And so today we're looking at another passage that deals with the promises of his coming. Um, and one of the challenges that we face as Christians on this side of Jesus' first coming is what do we do when we read these prophetic passages that talk about it from before his first arrival? Um, the point being uh, there, there's sort of a way of reading a lot of these Old Testament prophecies. And one of the, the words that my professors taught us was periscoping, um, meaning let's take, for example, I don't know how many of you all have ever driven uh, to Colorado before, but, you know, you're going through New Mexico and all of a sudden on the horizon, you see this this small shadow of mountains. Right. And it looks exactly like a two dimensional, uh, you know, paper drawing that. Uh, your children or I would draw because I have about the drawing ability of a child, uh, right? Just that little shadow of mountain silhouette. And you can't tell what mountains are in front, what mountains are behind. It all looks the exact same, right? Until you get a little bit closer. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh wait, this mountain is first. This mountain is behind it. And that is exactly what's going on when we read Isaiah or other Old Testament prophecies. When we read it, we're like, well, okay, uh, all of this is supposed to seemingly happen at one time, right? The Messiah is going to come and all of this is going to be made right and good, except when you get closer to it, right? On this side of Jesus' coming, we realize, oh, wait, there was, there's sort of an order to it that we didn't understand before. There's, there's a mountain here that's a little bit before the mountain over there and a little bit before the mountain over there. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? When you read these passages, there's a, there's a promise to this that you didn't realize would actually take place in two comings, in two arrivals of Jesus. Um, and so that's one of the challenges that we face as we read these passages is realizing that some of these have been, uh, um, some of them have been accomplished in Christ, but some of them were waiting again on his coming and uh, his coming uh, again. And so as we read Isaiah, um, we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 61. Um, we're cutting out just the, 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 the middle section, um, not because uh, of, of anything other than time, uh, but I, you know, recommend you you read those as well. But um, we're going to read one through four, and then eight through eleven as well. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For I love the Lord, uh, for I, the Lord, excuse me, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring. The Lord is blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we, uh, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you um, that you are at work causing righteousness and praise to sprout up. And we pray, Lord, that that would be true as we consider your word together, uh, that you would be at work in our hearts, that righteousness and praise would sprout even there. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, what does it mean to be saved? Right, this is uh, a, a question that a lot of Christians ask, um, but I think one of the questions that I would have for us this morning is, what are we exactly saved from? Um, if you're like me, you grew up hearing that from uh, you know kind of the Christian perspective that salvation is for the individual. It's we are saved from our sin. Our relationship with God is broken. And therefore, we need a Savior to repair that, to deal with our sin and to make us whole in relationship with him again. Right? So in essence, we are saved kind of from ourselves and from our own predicament, and we go to live with him forever. Right? And that is absolutely true. Do not at all hear me being negative toward that. But as we see in this passage, that is perhaps too small of a vision of what salvation actually is. That is just a part of the whole. That the promises of the Messiah are salvation, but not just for us as individuals, but the Messiah comes to bring salvation to all, all peoples of all nations. The Messiah comes to bring salvation to the world, to the created world that, as we've talked about in our Genesis series, has all of these perfect relationships uh, you know, going, going on at the same time, and that because of sin and because of our sin have been fractured. The Messiah comes to deal with all of that. And I want to look at our passage today that deals with that in two hopes, in two points. So the messianic hope, and then secondly, the messianic reality. And today we're actually going to be looking not just at the Isaiah passage, but also the Luke passage that Josie read for us as well. 
Um, we're going to be going back and forth between uh, the two. So the messianic hope and then the messianic reality. So the passage begins with the statement, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. Right? And at the very beginning of the passage, we're hearing from the perspective of the Messiah. Right? The Messiah is the one who is anointed, who has the spirit of the Lord upon him. Right? In fact, the word um, anointed is Mashiach in Hebrew. Right? That's where we get the word Messiah from. So this is very pointedly saying this is the Messiah here. Right? The Messiah is the one who is anointed, who has the spirit of the Lord upon him. And he's anointed by the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill these following purposes that come listed here um, in Isaiah. And, and, you know, the Bible loves numbers and doing things sort of in a biblical, biblically numbered order. And so there's seven sort of promises of renewal and of salvation that the Messiah here is going to bring. To bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim release to the captive, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort those who mourn, to bring oil of joy, and to provide new clothes and, or garments, as is mentioned in a couple of different varieties. Right? The, the anointed one, the one that the Lord sets apart and sends into the world, is the one who's going to accomplish all of this. Right? Through his leadership, through his reign and rule, he's going to do this. And, and this is unbelievable news for a conquered people, right? which is who Isaiah's original audience was. Right? A people who'd been taken from their home, right? where you've lost your belongings and your land. A people who are not just poor in spirit, but who have been conquered by another people and therefore are monetarily poor. A people who have not just been captivated by their sin, but are literally captives to another people. Right? And I bring this up because I think that we have a tendency to over-spiritualize what is being talked about here. Some of the spiritualization, I think, comes from the, the proper and right place. Right? It's, we sort of recognize that Jesus' contemporaries had the exact opposite issue. Right? They had very little spiritualization of these passages. So they tended to look at the Messiah who was going to come to physically set the captives free to set them free from Roman rule, to give them back their land and their possessions. And Jesus tells them that there's something bigger um, than, than just their uh, enslavement to Rome. There's another enslavement that is far greater. And there's another poverty that's far greater, right? They're enslaved to sin. They're impoverished uh, in their sin, and they have a poverty of righteousness, so to speak. Right? And the Messiah is the one who's coming to, to deal with that struggle. Right? And so we often stop there and say, well, okay, um, they've got it wrong. And so it's, it's salvation from sin. It's our, uh, our spiritual struggle that the, that the Messiah is coming to. And we miss that it is that. And God's anointed one has also come to physically liberate, to bring good news to those who have lost, uh, who have less wealth, to bring comfort to those who mourn, right? And not just mourn for their spiritual struggles, but for the very real circumstances that cause us to mourn in this world, right? And so as we read these things, we have a tendency to either or our readings of these passages, 
Right, well, if it's spiritual struggle and the Messiah is coming to deal with it, then the physical struggles are really no concern. Or what often comes the other path, the other way is, you know, I don't really have much of a, of, a, of a spiritual issue. Everything I find myself in is these particular physical issues um, or physical circumstances. And I think for most of us in this room, if you grew up in the church like I did, perhaps we fall more to the former side than the latter. But both are very easy to fall into. I think that some of our spiritualization, while it also comes from that good place, I think also comes from the fact that we have a lot of material comfort and wealth in the American church. We don't identify with a lot of what's going on in this list. We all understand the need to be comforted um, because we've all been really hurt or had sad and hurtful things happen to us. Um, But good news to the poor or um, to the captive or even the year of the Lord's favor, a lot of these things sort of miss um, in our hearts and in our minds. They don't hit us the same way that they would a Jew in the 5th or the 6th century, or that they do in the majority world where the gospel is spreading incredibly fast, right? in Asia and South America and Africa, where people identify with these promises a little bit more than we do. There's... One of these seven declarations that I want to spend a bit of time on, and it feels incredibly foreign to us. And it's when the when Isaiah says that the anointed one is going to bring the year of the Lord's favor. Um, in that declaration, he's actually referring to Leviticus chapter 25. And that it, I'll, I'll read it for us. Uh, don't worry. Um, Leviticus 25, verses 11 through 13, if you have a Bible. But otherwise, I'm going to read it. And that is... That 50th year, just, you know, whatever, the 50th year in their calendar shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. It is the year of jubilee. Each of you shall return to his property. And it goes on from there to list a few more aspects of what comes in the year of jubilee. The year of jubilee is a, it's kind of hard to explain, uh, I think, to our own mindset. Um, But it is basically, think of it this way. It is a big reset, right? It's a recognition that what we were reading in Genesis 3 and 4 is incredibly true. Because of our sin, there's a tendency for things to just spiral, to get way out of control, right? Where relationships crumble and people are exploited. Land is overworked and overused. But the year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee, brings restoration and flourishing by sort of saying, all right, everything that has gone on these last 50 years, we're going to go back to what it was like beforehand, right? So, for example, an Israelite doesn't sell their land. They were, they, if they went into poverty or they needed the money, they would lease out their land. But so that they never were a people who had, they, they, this is a double negative, so that they never were a people that didn't have access to land, so that they always had access to productivity. In the year of Jubilee, it was given back to them. The lease was over. They got it back. They had access to productivity again, Right? If you sold yourself, which you could never sell yourself into slavery uh, to another Israelite, but if you sold yourself to a non-Israelite, or if you had enslaved a non-Israelite, it wasn't slavery the way that we have thought about it. In the year of Jubilee, you were free. It was a cancellation of those debts. As we read here, the land 
was given rest. Right? It was a, re- a, a massive reset, recognizing that we are all hard-hearted and that God has created all things to be in re- right relationship with, w- with each other. And that as we go about living in this world, right, we often create destruction where we go. And so the year of the Lord, Lord's favor, that jubilee, was this great reset. And it was connected, to, it was connected to this promise of the Lord's favor, right? Um, that he would not just bring favor, but that he would also bring vengeance. Right? That's because in, a setting, in, setting, in setting everything back to right relationship, there, was, there has to be judgment against those who have done wrong. Um, there has to be an overturning justice against the heart of heart at the abuser who takes advantage. And so there is vengeance. And it isn't clear, um, as you read through the Old Testament, exactly uh, how um, biblically uh, the people of God actually kept the year of Jubilee. Um, it's a hard passage to keep. But as Americans, I think we really struggle with this concept. Um, it feels too much like government authority. Uh, it feels kind of communist to us. Um and there's there's some who've recently described these very biblical ideas as being sort of woke, um, even though they come exactly from the Bible. Right? The year of Jubilee is about the disposition of the heart. It's a recognition that the land that we own is not actually our land, it's God's. And so we're to steward it rightly. We're to recognize those who have very little access to things. It's a recognition that those who have wealth, influence, and ability are supposed to look for those, um, look after those who are oppressed. Um, Sorry for the distractions, y'all. It's that those who have ability are to look out for those who don't. Um, It's a disposition of the heart. And here's the point. Um, That as our spiritual disposition is fixed by the Lord's anointed one, so is the entire created order. As our hard-heartedness, our impoverishment of spirit, our captivity to idolatry, right? All of those things are overturned or healed or restored. So too, ultimately, is poverty in the world and captivity in the world and mourning in the world. And so to a small degree, and this is a part of, of the passages as well, as we're clothed in and by the Messiah, we are to be small examples of bringing that jubilee into the life of others. We're, we're called to be people who in a small way bring good news to the poor. We're called to be people who in a small way bring the Lord's favor to others. We cannot do it the way that the Lord is going to do it, but that doesn't mean that we don't do it in the little ways that we're called to do here and now, right? We're called to look for others after others' physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. We're called to recognize that God has given us blessings so that we might be a blessing unto others. Right? Um, but it's hard to do unless we begin to recognize that spiritual condition. Right? It's not an either or, but it is that that spiritual condition is, is sort of the first condition that needs to be dealt with. And so with that, let's turn uh, to the fact that the Messiah comes to deal with that in our messianic reality as we look at at the Gospel of Luke. So as we read in in that passage in Luke, Jesus begins his teaching ministry uh, with the reading of this passage in Isaiah. 
he goes into a synagogue after he's spent 40 days in the desert and he, he sits or stands up, the scroll is given to him and he reads it. Um, after he's been uh, in exile himself, he comes to do so after you know, being exactly like the Israelites here and what Isaiah has been talking about. Right, so he comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue. He opens the Isaiah scroll, and it says that he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then it says he stopped reading, and he rolled up the scroll, and he sat down. Right, now, this would have been an incredibly well-known passage. Right? Um, so, for example, this would have been a lot like me singing, and I want you all to finish this, if I were to sit here and go, look at this stuff, isn't it neat? Exactly. So if I stopped right there, you would know exactly what was supposed to come, but it didn't come, right? Or, for an example, like if I were to read, I love you forever, I like you for always, very good, right? So you're sort of chomping at the bit for the next part to come. And all of a sudden, he, he stops with, um, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It doesn't come. Jesus reads the first part, and he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And of course, his listeners react, right? They want for him to finish the rest of the passage. They want for him to proclaim vengeance. And we have a tendency to read the audience as, as, as merely kind of positive toward Jesus. But within a few verses, they're about ready to push him off of a cliff, right? So uh, it doesn't really make much sense that they're reacting positively here. But then in a few verses, they're, they're like, no, I'm done with this guy. We're ready to push him off of a cliff. Um, but when it says they marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth, the word gracious, I think, is part of the issue here, that it sounds very positive to us. And there's two different um, you know, commentary-type readings of this passage. One of them recognizes that perhaps the word gracious isn't actually about... Uh, um, you know, that, they, that it was like this really positive thing to their ears, but rather it was the substance of, his, uh, of what he was saying, right? That grace began, uh, that, 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 that grace here stirred up vengeance in their hearts, right? So imagine for a second how it would have sounded to soldiers of World War II if someone were to get up and to speak the Lord's favor to them and to say, you know what? And actually the Germans are forgiven and Hitler too, right? How would that sound to us? That grace begins to stir up anger in their heart. Because Jesus' listeners here realize that they needed a physical savior, someone to overturn Roman rule and give them back their land and their sovereignty. But they didn't realize was that they needed a spiritual savior. And so when Jesus cuts off his recitation of the passage from Isaiah early, his silence here is deafening to them. His gracious words are offensive Right? We are a people who are conquered. We're a people who are in captivity. This is our land. We're supposed to possess it. They're upset. But why does Jesus leave the second part of the verse out? Why doesn't he proclaim God's vengeance and his comfort? Right? Is he saying that there is no judgment and justice? Right? That's not a part at all of what he's coming to do? 
Is he saying that the Israelites' physical sufferings is just the way it is? Or like, you know what? I don't really care about you guys. Um, I'm dealing with something else. No. Jesus understands that the way the culture around him has misunderstood this passage, right? That, that they have entirely made it about their captivity to Rome. And they haven't understood their greater captivity. And so in leaving part of it out, he's challenging them. Challenging them to trust justice and vengeance to God, to be his prerogative. Challenging them to recognize that if vengeance is sought like they want, then they themselves will not escape that vengeance. He's challenging them to see their own need of a Messiah for their personal sin before they demand he be used on behalf of their problems. As one commentator I read said, said the radical inclusiveness of Jesus' ministry shocks his audience. They've understood themselves to be the primary beneficiaries of Jesus' message. They can all relate to being poor, captive, blind, or oppressed. They're ready for deliverance, but they are not prepared to share it. They're not prepared to share it. Right? In essence, they want to be the beneficiaries of God's favor, and they want others to be the recipients of God's wrath. It's not that God isn't bringing justice and vengeance. It's that the original audience isn't letting vengeance be the Lord's. Right? They want to wield vengeance themselves. They want vengeance and they want the Lord to be their arm of vengeance. Lord, do exactly what I say. Right? I, I recognize the injustices. Now you do what I say and you go out there and you strike them down. They don't recognize that they're just as deserving of God's wrath as their enemies. And isn't that exactly how we treat God as well? Where we say, you know, God, fix me. Right? I need a savior, like, but not like that. Uh, you know, that's not what I meant, Lord. Not, not all those ways as well. I meant, I meant like, fix me up. Just make me a better person or help me with my loneliness or help me with my addictions. But then, like, leave me alone. I don't want the rest of the stuff that comes with your freedom, and I definitely don't want you to fix that guy too. I hate that guy, right? I don't want you to forgive him or her. I don't want you to love him or her. I don't want them to trust you. And I definitely don't want to sit on the same pew with someone who lives that way or does those things. We who have hated God, who have taken his name in vain, who have ignored him and tried to live apart from him, who have been enemies of him, we are recipients of his favor. We are the ones that his gracious words are for. And guess what? We're not the only ones. He has looked on us, his enemies, and he has proclaimed his jubilee to us. He's withheld his judgment against us who deserve it, right? The vengeance that we all deserve and he showed us grace instead. Let me conclude with this thought. You know, the Isaiah passage ends with the imagery of righteousness and praise sprouting up from the ground, right? That the anointed one, he's going to sow these seeds they will ultimately bear fruit in an Edenic-like garden um, filled with the growth of righteousness, right? meaning right relationship and praise. 
as everything in this garden begins to praise God. All right, there's a, there's a passage in the Gospel of John. Uh, it's, it's basically, it's a hinge passage uh, in the entire Gospel. Uh, the, the Gospel of John is sort of two parts. Um, it's, it's basically uh, you know, the book of Jesus' teachings and his signs, and then it's the passion. Uh, it's the story of his going to the crucifix, the, cru- the, the, excuse me, the cross. Um, and John chapter 12 is, is sort of the hinge of that whole thing, and it hinges upon a particular verse. When Jesus, in, in a, a parable-like statement, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So how is it that the anointed one begins to sprout forth this righteousness and this praise? Does he come in power? Right? Does he come in that sort of sword-like vengeance to overthrow those that have come and that have, have mistreated others and abused others? Well, Jesus is saying that it isn't through that type of conquest. It isn't through that type of vengeance. It, is, it isn't through power and coercion. It isn't through lecture and behavioral adjustment classes. Um, it's through his own body falling to the earth and dying. It's through his crucifixion. For all of us who have mistreated one another, for all of us who have abused one another, he has died on behalf of us. He has taken that vengeance upon himself. Right? And through his resurrection, he sprouts new life. New life for you and me and new life for all of creation. This new creation that is taking root. One that he invites us to participate in. Right? Clothed in his robes of righteousness. Right, that we may go forth and be those people that proclaim in small ways good news to the poor, good news to the captive, because we have been captive to our own sin and we have been set free by the cross of Christ. And because it is coming, the eternal jubilee, the eternal reset is coming where all things will be made right and good. So turn to him in faith now and hope for his return to come. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for what you have promised and what you have accomplished in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you have not um, looked past our, our biggest need, which is our need of you. And that as we lean upon you in faith, Lord, um, that you are at work in this world, sprouting righteousness and praise and not overlooking our mourning, not overlooking our poverty or the poverty of those in this world, Father, but that you promise that when Christ comes again, you will reset all things. You will renew all things. So, Father, in the ways in which we doubt, I pray, give us faith. In the ways in which we, um, we grow weary, give us hope to lean upon you, to trust in your promises, and to trust in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.